Welcome to Narrow Lanes, a show for marketers where we discuss how to always be on the offense, how to create exceptional value through a healthy mix of obsession, but also sacrifice. Today, I'm speaking with Alison Klein. She is formerly a VP of marketing at Micron and a general manager of data-centric marketing at Intel. And today, Alison is a principal at Arena Marketing, a B2B marketing agency that serves the technology industry. Alison talked with me about how when we keep on searching for what we are best at, when we seek who we are meant to be professionally, when we are really trying to discover what we are truly good at, that journey leads us to understand our one unique superpower. And for her, that superpower is her ability to both understand all of the relevant technical details of a technology that she's implementing, but frankly, more importantly, to be able to explain to the customer the value of that technology. And this really resonated with me just last week, actually. I had a call with a client we have implemented for this for this uh, brand, uh, AdTech at MarTech, that collects first-party data, that enables them to do better, more personalized, more powerful marketing. But we were not doing good enough of a job to explain what the value of this data and tech was. And I know that the value is there, but we could have done a better job of actually communicating how data and tech translates into cost savings, incremental revenue, or maybe better user experience. And that's exactly what Alison talked to me about. She strongly believes that anyone who considers themselves to be a technologist or a data expert needs to not only talk about features, but also talk about just the value of the tech and the data. And that's the best way to actually talk to the business, to always connect data and tech with cost savings or revenue. So I'm really excited to share this episode with you. From Delve Deeper, this is Narrow Lanes. Alison Klein, welcome to Narrow Lanes. I'm really excited to have you here with me today. I'm so excited to be here and so excited to uh, investigate the topics that we're going to talk about today. I want to start with um, your career journey. I find that many career journeys are sometimes random and sometimes exactly what we wanted to happen. How did your start? I started um, in tech coming out of um, my MBA, and I had been a stockbroker of all things before that. So in finance, um, I started in sales because of that stockbroker background, and but knew that you know through my schooling that I wanted to get into marketing, and worked my way into some marketing roles in driving technology initiatives at Intel, um, and then. Ended up spending over 20 years at Intel in a really um, interesting career path, totally not um, linear, to your point. Uh, took on different roles and um, defining social media for the data center for the company, um, doing a lot of leadership, tech leadership marketing in various um, technologies from cloud computing to virtualization, and then later in my career into 5G and AI. And left the company in 2020 um, as the GM of Data Center Edge um, uh, Computing and, you know, anything from IoT to comms networks uh, to cloud environments. I went on to uh, lead uh, global communications uh, and marketing for Micron. And then about a year ago, I realized that I wanted to start my own company and take um, everything that I've learned from that incredible career journey and apply it to clients and, and you know, work across brands um, to drive uh, technology marketing forward. And in doing so, established my own uh, tech influencer platform. So I'm out writing for myself and, and uh, engaging in podcasts and different um, technical publications, 
giving my point of view on what's happening in the data center to edge landscape? You know, I, I find that when I'm in the moment, it's hard to really remember why am I here right now in this role. But if I give myself the time, the space to reflect on what happened over the last 25 years of my career, what is one recurring theme that you've seen sort of bubble up? Or maybe it's something that you have realized lately, maybe several years ago, but is there a thread across the 25 plus years that you think has been critical to you really moving really rapidly, especially, you know, at those 20 plus years at Intel? I think that one of the things that comes back to me is when I'm true to myself in terms of what I'm really good at, two things happen. One is the success, however you want to define it, of my career accelerates and my happiness goes up. So getting really grounded in what I think are, you know, my superpowers. And and for me, I think one of my superpowers is being able to translate some of the most complex technology on the planet into terms that uh, customers and, and broader communities can understand. And taking that and really applying it to um, content streams that will get consumed. I mean, I think that that's it in a nutshell. Um, I think when I'm close to that and I'm a practitioner in that space, that um, I reach a happy place for me and um, that's rewarded in terms of career success. But that takes reflection, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Not, not just, you know, experience. But I like how you said true to yourself. That means you know what you're good at. And that means that you can be in your happy place. And your point about being able to translate complex technology systems, data systems into something that can be published and maybe understood in five, 10 or three minutes. How did that, how did this come about? I think that, um, you know, I am not an engineer by trade, but I was working at a company that is one of the most technical on the planet, right? The, the intricacies of microprocessor architecture and how microprocessors serve as the foundation for so many things um, from a standpoint of broader infrastructure, but as well as up the stack. It takes a knowledge of the computing domain to be able to market that. And that's applicable to systems change. It's, it's applicable to software. It's applicable to what every IT department is seeking. Um, I think that my natural curiosity and really wanting to understand things um, from a perspective of being a non-technologist, I mean, obviously you get, you get technical when you work in an environment like that, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a marketing um, background. I think that that's really helped me. And then I think that the other thing is just like having incredible mentors along the way, people who um, really took the time um, to educate me about technology from a standpoint of of the depths of it as well as the breadth of what we were working on through that landscape. Right, that that's something that's that's uh, really powerful. Um, but then I think that you know it's also just understanding what works and having a pragmatic attitude about, you know, it's, it's not achieving nirvana Mm -hmm. from a marketing standpoint. It's having impact in market and, and having a fast fail attitude that's really helped um, hone the skills because I've had the luxury of trying things along the way that gave me key learnings about what works in market and what doesn't. Two things stand out that you shared, which is, curiosity and mentors, you know, I have to be honest, like I, I can't think of a mentor that I have had, which I think is just such a waste of an opportunity. I, I, the curiosity point about curiosity totally resonates with me. As I think about my career, I think that 
this constant reflection and curiosity has given birth to certain principles or certain, let's call them undeniable truths or commandments or honestly things I'm unwilling right now to be uncompromising about. Is there something that stands out in your career journey that served you well at Intel, but also serves you well right now at Arena Marketing? Yeah. I think it's there's two things. One is um, show up authentically and, you know, engage with people from a standpoint of wanting to do good work and not just wanting to get ahead. Um, you know, I think that my success was almost accidental. When I hear people talk about, you know, how they had a strategy for career ascendance, I never did. I I was just, you know, I wanted to do good work. I wanted to challenge myself and I wanted to work with really smart people. And what I've found over the last few years as I've, you know, left an environment at Intel that was, um, you know, some a place that I stayed a long time is that my reputation followed me in terms of being somebody that folks wanted to work with, which is fantastic. And I think I earned that through just being that authentic person. Um, at least that's what I hope is true. Um, I think the second thing is, you know, from a standpoint of curiosity, you, you talked about both. Um, it's, I, I had a conversation once with somebody that I worked with at Intel for a long time, um, who's now at Oracle. And one of the things she said was, if you have something that sparks your curiosity and it doesn't seem to be on your linear path for career ascendance, follow that curiosity because you will end up growing in spaces that you didn't even expect you you to grow in. And I think that that's very true. Um, you know, the move to Micron and, and really reaching out into, you know, corporate comms, policy comms, internal comms, things that I hadn't touched um, in previous roles, there was a curiosity of, of learning there. And I absolutely feel like I grew from, from those experiences in ways that I wouldn't had I stayed on that linear career path. So it's just opening yourself up um, to stretching and growing and maybe not always thinking about career growth as a linear path. When I think about my own experience, I remember coding SAS. It's a statistical language. 25 years ago and realizing that I was a pretty terrible coder, but also learning that I was quite good at identifying patterns in data. And I think to your point, curiosity about coding took me to a place that I didn't expect to find myself at. I didn't right. know that, that reading patterns in data was actually in a way my superpower and probably one of several, right. when you think about authenticity, when you think about really, I think, listening to yourself about what you can be good at so that you can be in a happy space, as you shared earlier, is there one area or, or skill where you found, again, both at Intel, Micron, at right now, at Arena, Arena Marketing, where you realize this is something that I'm really good at and I want to go deeper and I really want to own it and I want this to be mine. Yeah. I think it's that translation that we talked about earlier. You know, it's, it's understanding how to engage technologists in a way, and a lot of technologists, you know, they're the smartest people on the planet in a lot of ways, but sometimes they're not comfortable with communicating what they're inventing. I think that there, I have an ability to work with them um, to really distill their messages and um, get them to be more comfortable in sharing the marvels that they're delivering in a way that um, folks can follow along their journey and engage with them. And I think that, you know, in terms of tech arena, that's really come to the forefront Um with the content that I've been producing, especially the podcast series, I've had over 65 interviews in the first year. Impressive. Um, yeah, with, with just like incredibly intelligent and, you know, inspiring guests from across the tech domain that are doing incredible things in their companies. And I think that 
dialogue and guiding them through conversations um, is something that, you know, is part and parcel to what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, they show up and and they're able to tell their stories in a way that I think um, even surprises them sometimes in terms of uh, the impact that they're having. But then it goes further, you know, just working with brands on, you know, how do you take those stories and really bring them out so that, you know, they can differentiate, they can, they can shine. I think that that's, that's the area that um, I'm most interested in pursuing at this point. And it's really understanding what I'm not, you know, I'm absolutely not somebody that's going to go find patterns and data like you do, you know, that's an opportunity where I see, you know, myself more on the messaging and, and content side and, and knowing that, you know, great partnerships in those spaces are important to propelling my business forward. Now, when I think about that principle, which is, or, or that thing that you're really great at, which is, helping people who are experts, who know exactly what these systems do and what data they produce and what value is therefore generated and enabling individuals with this skill set to actually shine when speaking in, in maybe podcasts, maybe it's in white papers, maybe it's on a stage. If I take that one level higher I think this is a problem that many brands suffer from, which is that, you know, I may be focusing on technical aspects of something that I'm producing, or I may be emphasizing a feature set that's very specific, or I may emphasize other unique characteristics of a product or service that I offer, but translating those technical specifications into something that the audience actually cares about and that generates value for the audience, as simple as that sounds, I think that's really difficult and it's a masterclass level, that translation between the technical and actually value creation. What are you hearing? You know, it's funny. I, I think that it comes down to storytelling and understanding, you know, it's just basic. So, you know, going back to just, you know, Homer, um, hmm. you have an audience, right? you have an audience that wants to hear a story and they expect story narrative um, delivery that has a beginning, middle, and end. And we've been all trained to listen to stories um, based on, you know, archetype themes. You can, you can break those down. But I think that demystifying technology and saying we're all human, first of all, and humans have some functional ability to take in stories based on what we've seen since we were children, right? I mean, there are ways that we can listen to things and things that um, make us tune in more. And understanding that storytelling is integrated across, um, uh, you know, analytical, emotional, and gut-level response to stories. So how do you deliver a story that touches on all three? Because if you look at brain scan studies, it'll show that when you when you touch on those various elements, different parts of the brain light up. And what you're trying to do is actually engage as much of the brain as possible so that your audience actually remembers what you've been telling them. I think that in working with brands, what I see is either a story is way too analytical. Mm -hmm. It, it it is the nature of an engineering culture to be analytical, and I get that, but they're not they're only lighting up a small portion of the brain. Or they're telling the story from a middle point. They're telling the how um, rather than backing up to the why. And that's an opportunity that is lost in terms of engaging their audience um, on a path that makes them care, right? So the why is why it's valuable to them. So I'm really curious if you think back, for example, to your time at Intel, and this is obviously much less about any specifics. It's more about the situation. Is, is there a situation that comes to mind where you were able to put your talents to use, where you felt like your superpower of kind of explaining something that's complicated and technical to an audience that can actually appreciate the value that that solution creates 
were able to apply that superpower and where that needs to be a great storyteller and start at the end and work backwards, like you said, really was maybe in some way transformational or maybe you really created huge impact because you had a chance to be there at the time and, and apply yourself and create value. You know, I think that one of the things that Intel historically has done is defined um, broader industry stories that the the bar of success was, are others in the industry using the same nomenclature and telling the story in the same way? And I think that if I, one of the last things that I worked on at Intel um, was the creation of, um, with a team on on the data-centric computing story, which dates back to 2019, 2020, but it really did set up a vision of data center to edge um, computing that where data is the center of everything that you're trying to do. And it was the precursor to what we're seeing talked about today with AI, right? It's extracting Mm -hmm. value from data and doing so in a manner that you're taking um, every input um, wherever it resides in a, a broad computing landscape and getting um, analytics and, and insight as close as you can to where the data resides. Um, that storyline was something that took a small team, you know, months and months to define. Mm-hmm. And I think that it, when it came out, it really set um, not only Intel's leadership more clearly with influencers in, the, in Wall Street and customers and, you know, understanding the method to the madness of what Intel was doing at the time. And I don't think we need to discuss what's happened since then, but I think that it was, it was a very good moment for Intel for clarity. But you can see that resonating even today in the way broader industry talks about the opportunity with data and data centricity and data gravity and some of the things that came into that narrative are now part of the natural nomenclature of the industry around what um, computing platforms are trying to achieve. Those are the moments where you know that you, yeah, you know, you hit it out of the park when you see that your words become standard nomenclature across, across companies. That's when you know that you've done something really good to define clarity in a moment that required it. Um, That would be an example. Yeah. There are others, but I think that, that that's something where it's like, okay, yeah, I had I had a meaningful impact here. I want to pick at this example a little bit more. So, I mean, just imagining and tell me if this makes sense, that Intel, large corporation, multiple stakeholders, many different opinions, a multi, multi-month long process with a product that was probably an important element of their go-to-market strategy. So, I... Th- would imagine that you had to put your foot down several times or you had to really fight for something or be obsessed about something or be uncompromising. Is that fair or that wasn't really needed? Yeah, I think that anytime you're in a large corporation like that and you're trying to get onto a central message, one of the things that I see happen especially when you have many, many executives at play, is that we're all human, right? Going back to that human nature, we all want to tell the story in our own way, yes. right? And the only way that we can achieve breakthrough is when we use consistent language, consistent taxonomy to broad audiences. Um, any marketer or comms professional knows the challenge that alignment to a single message takes. I was talking to um, a CEO of a, a business uh, recently in trying, you know, this was a different company, but trying to align to a single story. And, he, you know, we were talking about narrative development. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, it's not the narrative. I can write you a narrative. It's getting your executives committed to using it. Because I can write the best narrative in the world, but if if everybody's going to tell their own story, you shouldn't pay me. You shouldn't pay me for that. And, and, and was there something specific that you had to use, employ, a tactic, a, a way of addressing the objective that broke through, that was a breakthrough 
where yeah. you saw the team align behind that narrative that ultimately everyone was repeating down the road? Was there something that just cut through and got them, you know, all to, to believe that this is the way to proceed in terms of communication? I think that there's a few things. One is um, having champions in the room okay. uh, that are, that are going to be committed. The second is having a narrative in this case that allowed for some flexibility where folks wanted to go off book. So it's like, hey, yeah, you can tell that second level story any way you want, but at top level, this is what we're going to commit to saying. Then your role will be to customize it around this particular pillar and take it wherever you want it to go. But what I want you to do is start with this story around data centricity. And I think that giving that flexibility and understanding, you know, understanding the humanity in the room. Yeah. That everybody wants to differentiate themselves. Everyone wants to tell something that's going to be their mark, but giving them a framework to do it where we achieve both objectives, I think is, is the critical thing. I mean, I'm almost hearing this bit of a tug, tug of war between empathy for the people who are passionate about this technology uh, and also this recognition that we need to serve the customer and we need to ultimately deliver value. So there's an element of empathy, but I, I, I'm really curious about your point about champions. Like, can you share an example of how you found those champions and how they then maybe served as pillars for this, for everyone champions else? Champions are hard to find. Yeah, how, how does one do that? Champions are hard to find. Champions choose you in a lot of cases. But um, I think that, you know, the, one thing about working in very large environments, and it's something that I appreciate because I run my own company. It's much smaller than any of the companies that I've uh, worked in prior. And so some of these things don't relate to my current environment. Mm -hmm. But in large environments, understanding... Um, who has the political capital to help you achieve your objectives if you do not have it yourself yes. is something that everybody should be asking, right? It's like, you know, who in the room can actually make a decision to support it, even if they're not the decision maker, mm -hmm. right? Who can actually influence that decision? Um, then go talk to them yeah. about what are what are their objectives? What are, what are they trying to accomplish and how can you support their objectives? And really understanding authentically what it is that matters to them and then make a case of why they should invest some of their political capital in you. Um, I think that's the way that you develop champions is the, that authentic conversation. But a lot of it is, is based on building a reputation for yourself that you're actually going to deliver results. Um, so I think, I think it's, you know, it's a combination of those two things. And, and I would imagine, I know I remember working for Bath & Body Works, you know, smaller organization than Intel, but three billion. But still a corporate. Still yeah. very corporate. Absolutely. And it, what, what was hard for me back then was being authentic, but also recognizing that I work within a structure and marrying the two. Right. And what I'm hearing you say, and as I reflect on my own experience, is that going to someone who I would want to be a champion, and I'm thinking back to 2005 when I was at, at Bath & Body Works, if I went into that situation being truly my authentic self and being very clear about why am I here, but also, to your point, making, making clear that I'm really here to listen, not to talk. Right. That seems like, that seems logical to me. Again, it also just seems hard. Yeah, it is hard because I think that there's so much focus in the corporate arena on what is urgent mm -hmm. rather than what's important. Yes. And so, you know, if you're having conversations with stakeholders, they're expecting you to come to talk about whatever is urgent when you may want to have a conversation to learn about what's important and, um, you know, finding the ways to bridge between those things, that's why um, having a track record of delivery is so critical, right? 
because if somebody sees that, hey, this person has always delivered upon their promises, and now they want to have a conversation about me, it's not a waste of my time to actually educate them. Yes. Because there's going to be something that comes back, right? And so I think it's, it's you know, building that track record and then having the authentic dialogue that will get you to understand the playing field a little bit better and get you in a position that you can bridge to, hey, I know these are your business priorities. This is what I need to achieve. And this is how I think that this can work together. That can work in narrative, which we've been talking about, but it could work in anything, right? It can be, it can work in any place that there's connection points. I think there's something really human here or humane, which is that there's almost a different persona that we put on, different game face that we wear when we present to a room of 30 professionals, senior leaders, let's say in this context or in any other corporate context versus these one-on-one conversations. And I think they're both appropriate and I think they seem both correct and almost necessary. Is that fair? I think so. I think that, you know, whenever you're in a big realm of people and you're, and you're presenting an idea or a concept, you have no idea what happened in that room when you weren't there. Right. You don't, you don't know what other challenges they've got on their plates. I've walked into rooms to present what I think is the most important thing that I'm going to be doing for the year. And I know they're not listening to me at all because they've got another business challenge on their minds that is something that's very pressing. So how do you get that room back? How do you, how do you reconnect with them? Or how do you know that this is not your moment? Right. And you need to punt to a different moment so that you can actually re-engage with them when they're ready. Um, a lot of it is just reading the room and and doing the pre-meetings up front to know where the room is at so that yeah. you're going in prepared. You know, that the thing about, you know, one person to 30 people, do those one-person conversations before you get in front of the 30 people so that you know what you're walking into as best as you can. You don't always have perfect visibility, but doing that stuff is important. You know, I'm always hearing is that the word politics get, gets used a lot in, in corporate settings, but it's easy to, I think, judge this and say, when I'm meeting someone one-on-one, being authentic with them, and also desperate to hear their point of view, and I'm using the word desperate on purpose because I think that one almost has to have this, have this yearning to hear the other side because we we sense things. We often don't hear things. But that may be perceived as politics when in reality, I think in my experience, it's just being human and having empathy. Yeah. And it's okay to do that. I think so. I mean, I think that if you if you put yourself in the other position, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, what's important to you? that's not a bad conversation to have, right? It's like, oh, wait, you're taking time out to talk to me about what's actually important to me rather than just telling me what you need. Right. That's unique. Um, But I think that, you know, it, it is political and, you know, all organizations have some sort of political nature about them. That's the way it is. It's also just... It's also just complex, right? Yeah. Anytime there's a complex organizational structure and... um multiple business objectives, um, you need to understand that landscape. And that is part and parcel to any corporate environment of just really understanding the changing landscape of what is the priority, what are on executives' minds, what, you know, what is, how does that translate to what I'm responsible for? How do I help the broader business? So if I was to zoom out, what I'm hearing is that if my superpower is to bring a message that maybe is intrinsically very complex and technical to the market in a way that creates value for the audience, I do need to be able to focus on reading the scenario and whether in this context, we're obviously zooming into the, the champions and there are many other elements, but whether it's in a large setting or these one-on-one 
conversations with these champions that I have identified is almost a necessary, a must-have element of me getting the team to agree on that message. But I also wonder, is that, let's call it obsession or focus or commitment to finding and nurturing those champions, is there a dark side to this process? Is there something that I need to sacrifice or be willing to give up? Well, I, I think that it's a really good question. I think there are some pitfalls that people run into. One is you might lose track of the audience that you're actually talking to hmm. and want to write messages that please the champions more than please the customer. Interesting. So that's something that I don't know if you've seen this, but you know, I, I think that companies can sometimes want to please their executives or marketing teams want to please their executives in messages that resonate with the executives, they forget that the executives are, are the mouthpiece, not the, I mean, they're not they're the audience, that, but you know, they're, they're, they're not the audience. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's an important thing to always be checking yeah. is, you know, am I, you know, I, I want the executive team that I'm working with to really love this message in order to tell it but I don't want them to love it at the expense that it loses its resonance with the customer Yep. and, or whoever the audience might be. It could be investors. It could be um, media and analysts, whatever the prior primary objective is. But I think that um, that is a pitfall. Yep. And I think that, you know, the other pitfall is, losing the authenticity to provide perspective and feedback on messages because you're trying to maintain that champion relationship. And that's an important thing. When you're working with executives on narratives and comms delivery in this context is you've got to have your ability to say, hey, the way this story is coming together doesn't hunt on this part. And this is why, and this is the feedback, and this is the data, you know, this is the data that we know about our customers to know that this message, you know, is not resonating in market. I think that I've seen uh, marketing teams fail when they've lost their ability through politics or fear or whatever mm -hmm. to really give feedback. But what I'm hearing is that, and, and I believe in this, deeply and i agree with you that as a marketer we always have to be anchored to what is that audience that i'm serving what are they going through and then how do i fit in into their story yeah. and how do i make them a hero on their journey and it really doesn't matter if it's a shoe company an apparel company a service company or a microchip company or an agency like Arena, it's right. this need to be committed and uncompromising about who ultimately am I serving as a marketer? And to your point, it's not about what I think, what you think, what that champion thinks. It's about what that audience needs. You know, I, I find that, and I've been doing marketing for 25 years, as simple as that sounds, it's so easy to get confused and sacrifice that. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's funny, I've, I've been working inside my own company on developing tools to help companies in this space. And, yeah. you know, we're moving from a publish and pray model of marketing where we'd put a message out and see if it resonated to so many tools. AI has given us so many advantages in this space, but just pure data analytics and, you know, building the right MarTech stacks of really understanding what's resonating and what's not. And I think the marketers heading into the next decade, marketers who, who take advantage of these tools and really understand what they have at their disposal are going to be in such great positions to be valuable to the broader company because it really is an insight into that customer and really understanding that customer from an intimate perspective of you know what matters, what doesn't, what is a feature and what is a benefit. Um, I think that that's going to be huge. Let's talk about those two things. Uh, you said that, yes, it is important to understand how you are part of the solution 
for the specific problem in the mindset or the daily life of the consumer that you're serving. So I'm really curious to understand how do I get at that and how does Arena serve that question or solve that question? And then your point about technology, I'm honestly, I don't know what that means. So how does technology (laughs) and data and AI help me either validate or refine or maybe it's about having either broader or more narrow aperture and clarity around that, that I am actually, in fact, solving a problem that I thought I'm solving. And, it, and it's really working out for me. You know, I think that we're moving from a landscape of an editorial being the driver of, of marketing to customer demands being the driver of marketing. Hmm. And so instead of having a a linear path of content pipeline if if you will we're looking at an omni-channel um, approach to meeting the customer wherever it is whether it's on a digital domain at an event in a customer meeting um you know in a post sales support conversation and having as much awareness as possible about how that customer has engaged the company and how we continue on a a dialogue with them that is aware of everything else. So, you know, I, I love experiencing this as a consumer. And I think I can talk about it from a consumer perspective really well, because you know gut level when it happens. When you've bought something and a company comes back to you for a support conversation and they know exactly how you purchased the product, where you've engaged the brand, why you've desired it, everything that you fed to them, they feed back to you. And they do it in a way that is not creepy. I think that's the key. Um, but, you know, you you understand the customer and what, what they've told you is important to them. And you don't forget that. The other experience is when you're talking to, you know, just imagine talking to an airline and you have typed in all of the information into their phone tree about what your problem is that you're calling about. Yet when you get somebody on the line, you have to repeat everything that you've just typed in. Mm-hmm. That is a, a a way of not having customer intimacy and really failing the customer in terms of making them feel seen. Um, I think that marketers that understand that these technology tools are available to them across this omni-channel landscape to be able to customize the narrative if you want to think about it that way and deliver something that is going to be meaningful and um, personalized to each customer. I think that that's where we're at. It's through analytics. It's through, you know, a lot of data about customer personas. It's it's through um, setting up seamless ways that you're engaging the customer. So great MarTech tools. Um, but it's absolutely possible today. And I think that that's where, you know, when when we're delivering messages into market, ensuring that those messages pull through into content streams that engage customers in this manner, I think is the future of of where we're going. I don't think a lot of, you know, I work in the B2B space, you work in the B2C space. I don't think a lot of B2B um, brands are hitting it out of the park here. I think B2C is definitely leading in this space, mm-hmm. but I think that B2B will will absolutely follow in the appropriate ways. And is there an example from Arena where, and I know I'm pulling this from your LinkedIn, where a scrappy startup or a tech titan that you have worked with um, maybe was about to walk off the cliff. Maybe they thought that the go-to-market messaging, you know, had to follow lane A, but really you pulled them back and you steered them towards messaging that was more authentic to who they are and maybe more important to be heard by the the target audience that they're going after. Yeah, I think that there are many examples and a lot of my clients don't let me talk about them. Yes. But, um, you know, I'll give you an example of a scrappy startup that was on my podcast mm-hmm. um, to give you an example of where I think their story really haunts. And it's a company called Lemurian Labs. Um, they're making um, silicon accelerators for AI. Wow. And I think that they have a they have a, a really impactful narrative 
around um, the democratization of AI access that I think is something that we're going to be talking about a lot in 2024. We're already talking about it now. Um, But in AI, we've got companies like Microsoft, Google, Amazon, you know, that have the world's data that are building these massive AI uh, clusters, training them on, you know, every Google search that's ever happened in the world, uh, for example, giving them insights to um, AI models that are blowing our minds. ChatGPT is one, but, you know, more will follow. I think that one of the things that we want to do in 2024 is see larger, you know, uh, pervasive use of AI and enterprises across all verticals being able to use that core capability and build out solutions that um, will tap AI in the same way that the large companies are doing. What we don't want to see is, you know, a, a bifurcation, a further bifurcation of the haves and the have-nots within the AI era. But that requires some industry innovation to make that um, affordable for um, companies. And that's where Lemurian comes in. How do you change AI and the the foundational math associated with AI to make it something that can be um, in the grasp of the masses? They have a very um, complex and technical way of doing that mm-hmm. that gets into logarithmic equations. And this is where... Um, taking a complex message and making it something um, resonate beyond the six people in the room that can understand logs. Yep. Um, I think they have a great story and they, you know, they, they came on uh, Jay Dewani, who's the CEO came on my podcast and told it. And I was just like bought in hook, line and sinker that they have a vision that really uh, could resonate in the marketplace. Just one example. Yeah. But I think that there, you know, there are many where, you talk to a brand and, you know, it could be that they have a very narrow market and they're, they're using broad market uh, marketing tactics and marketing funnel. Um, it could be that their messaging, you know, what, what I said before, the how of how their technology works yes. and not why it's important and why they're differentiated why from care. all the other folks that are delivering. Yeah. yeah. So it, it could be one of many issues um, getting to that where the gap is, is one of the jobs for me in in engaging clients of like, hey, here's where maybe your problem is. And this is where we could probably add some value. That's like a center to every new client conversation. And and do you find that whether being inside of the business or as a consultant, this idea of being authentic to yourself, knowing what you're good at, and also finding a champion is still relevant. Do you still have to find a champion Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a different kind of champion, but yes, somebody that's going to believe that my business actually could offer something of value to their broader marketing goals. Champions are absolutely required. And I think that that authenticity of saying, hey, I think I can help you with this. You're coming. I've, I've had conversations with clients who have asked me to do things where I'm like, you know what? I can give you a referral of somebody else that's the best in the industry at that, but it's not necessarily something that I want to do with my business. Having the opportunity to have those conversations, I think, also adds authenticity to the fact that I actually care about delivering value and not just making money. So that I think that that's important as well. Well, and people can smell that. People can Exactly. S- now, to, to close off, when you look at the last 25 years, 25 plus years, and we spoke at the very beginning about being authentic to who I am on my career journey as a marketer, and then really discovering what I'm good at and using curiosity as a way to discover what my superpowers are and then leaning into those superpowers. What do you think would have happened to your career had you had this clarity sooner? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I don't, I, the, the first thing that came into my mind was I probably would have left corporate earlier. <laughs> why? Why, why, why do you think so? I think that, um, 
I'm really good at working across storylines. And I think that that lends itself into being a marketing consultant that's working across multiple brands. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that the time that I spend in corporate does give me the gravitas that it that's needed to be successful Absolutely. in the business that I'm in now. But I do think that I would have come to that conclusion more quickly had I known, you know, true insight into what that superpower was. Um, and I think that, um, you know, probably there might have been, you know, maybe one or two more stops on the career journey too, hmm. just to get that rounding of um, different brands and different storylines to take into the marketplace. That might have been another change that I would have made, but that's 2020 hindsight at this point. And look, I recognize this is a truly a um, tricky question because there is this paradox here of we need these experiences to make it clear to us what we're good at so we can lean into and be uncompromising about the things that we believe. And we just need to go through that process to realize certain things. And that's just the way life works. But I, you know, right. I often personally wish that I could go back and, and talk to myself in different situations. But I also know that that would have been probably quite futile. It's just not how it works. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think that that's the thing is like, yes, that could have been a, another interesting career journey, Yeah. but I'm very grateful for the one that I had. And so it's, it's up to this point. I don't think that, um, you know, there is a right answer to that. You just, you take what you get. It's that nonlinear nature that we talked about earlier, right? Um, would there have been a different one? Sure. But um, I don't know if it would be better or not. We never know that. I think that there are many exactly. multiverses. Exactly. I'm a huge you know, Marvel fan, Star Wars fan, I think. There you go. There are many multi- multiverses and we can never know which one would have selected. Many narrow lanes that we could have followed. How about that? Exactly. Exactly. Well, Alison Klein, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for sharing your narrow lane and your journey. And this is Greg Sobiech. I'll see you next time around. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Of course.